Well, we are, you guys laughing about, oh, this little thing? I'll explain that in just a little bit. Uh, we are continuing on in our sermon series called Runaway Love. We're looking at what's oftentimes referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. But one of the things that we've been noticing as we've been engaging in this study is that it's, the focus really isn't about the son. The focus is on the father in the parable. It tells us about God's love towards us. And so we're going to study that today, although today we are actually focused on the youngest son, uh, who's often referred to as the prodigal. Before we get into it, though, I wanted to, make, uh, to, to mention a couple of different things. At Desert Springs, we're all about helping you take your next step with Jesus. And so whether that's getting baptized, whether that's joining one of our uh, service teams like the production team or others, uh, or maybe it's uh, connecting with a group or a class, an opportunity to grow, kind of like Financial Peace University. And there's two opportunities that are coming up this month uh, with a focus on investing in marriage. So if you are married or thinking about getting married, I would encourage you to take advantage of these two opportunities. The first one coming up is next weekend. It's a simulcast called Marriage Night. And we're going to be joining with uh, thousands of other churches all across the country for a great evening uh, to focus on marriage and to hear from some great speakers. It's going to be a ton of fun. Um, and then second, we have a, a workshop. It's a multi-week workshop called Renew the Vow. And so if you attend the simulcast, that's a great kind of one-off opportunity to kickstart uh, growth. And then the second uh, uh, opportunity, the Renew the Vow, again, it's a multi-week uh, workshop-based uh, program and ministry opportunity for you to uh, improve communication skills, conflict resolution, figure out who gets the remote, things of this nature that are critical to any successful marriage. And so again, if you're married, maybe you're thinking about getting married, regardless of if uh, you're uh, newlyweds, you've been married for uh, 150 years, or maybe it seems like you've been married for 150 years, these are great opportunities for you. You can visit our website, dsbc.church. And as with all of our opportunities, if you go to the menu at the top, you'll see a big link that says events. Click on that, and it'll take you to the links for uh, these ministry opportunities. Now today, we are going to be looking at Luke uh, chapter 15. This is a parable of Jesus or a story with a point uh, that Jesus tells. And the context that he gives it in is he is uh, at a table dining with uh, what the scripture refers to as tax collectors and sinners. And so he's dining with uh, people who you would not generally want to be associated with if you were kicking around Jesus' day. Uh, tax collectors, though they, they were wealthy, but the way that they got their wealth was by extorting their own people. And then sinners was kind of a junk drawer category, simply to refer to people who couldn't really be considered righteous. And so, especially if you were a religiously devout person, you would not want to be associated with tax collectors and sinners. In fact, in the beginning of Luke chapter 15, you see at the same, in the same space... You see religious leaders called Pharisees and scribes. Now, many of, not all, but many of the Pharisees and scribes kind of had a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. They thought of themselves a little bit more highly than they ought to think. And so they were really concerned about who they associated with in order to keep status, in order to keep their prestige as, you know, religious, upright, standing citizens. They were really careful about who they ate a meal with because eating a meal with somebody communicated to everybody else, these are my kind of people. And Jesus uh, completely flipped the script 
And he dined with not the religious elite, but with tax collectors and sinners. And he gives three consecutive teachings called parables. And the third one he gives is, again, what's often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. I'm going to read it in its entirety. And what I'm going to ask you to do is, if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask that you not read along just yet. We are going to go back through and read it. But this story, the story with the point that was given by Jesus, was designed to be heard more than it was to be read. And again, there's nothing wrong with reading it. We're going to read along here in just a minute. But I'm going to ask that you would simply allow your mind's eye to engage the text. Allow your imagination to come alive as you hear this masterful teaching from Jesus. This is Luke 15, 11 and on. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. And so he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had. And he traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him to feed his fields, uh, sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Now he longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am, dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. And so he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran and he threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe, put it on him. Put the ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let us celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry, and he didn't want to go in. And so his father came out 
and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving years for you and I have never disobeyed your orders and yet you never gave me even a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, this one who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, the father said to him, you are always with me, and everything that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. This is the word of the Lord. In your imagination, how do you envision God? In your mind's eye, how do you envision God? To put it another way, when you think about God and his attitude or posture towards you, what is the nature of his attitude and posture towards you? In this text, we find a beautiful illustration of God's radical and often surprising love and grace. And so what I'd like for us to do for the remainder of our time together is just go through the first part of the parable. Next week, we'll pick it up again and finish it out. We'll make a few comments, notice a few things together as we study the Bible together and then I'd like to share with you just a little bit about this T-shirt. Does that sound good to you? So, the parable opens. A man had two sons. Now, immediately, you get the scene, right? Here's a father with two boys. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. Give me what I've got coming to you, uh, to, to coming to me. Now, notice... What the father could have said is, with this level of disrespect, I'm going to give you my foot in your butt because that's what you have coming to you, coming at me, asking for your inheritance before I'm dead. But the father did not do that, did he? Now, this is not absolutely unheard of in the ancient world, although it does seem to be rare and it does seem to be a level of, uh, I don't want anything to do with you no mo. Right? So I, I don't know that the son is saying, you're dead to me. I don't, it doesn't seem to be that harsh, but it does seem to be, I think I can do better managing my own affairs better than I can under your roof. Does this sound familiar to anyone? How many of you have ever been a teenager? Okay. So does this seem that foreign to you? For those of us that are uh, younger than the age of 13, this parable is going to make a lot more sense to you in the years to come. Now, parents, I want to caution you against the temptation from giving them what they've got coming to them, just as the father does here. Give me what I got coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had and traveled to a distant country. TV timeout. Notice that the father liquidates his assets and gives it to the son which is a huge undertaking. 
because it's not likely that they just did an online bank transfer. It's highly unlikely that he had all of his assets in some, you know, pile of coin buried in the basement. Now, it's likely that he liquidated some of the uh, livestock, maybe some of the property. We're not quite sure, but those in the ancient world would have immediately understood that the father went to great lengths to provide for the son what he needed. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together what? All that he had. He didn't leave his uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles poster in his bedroom. He took everything and he's leaving. What does that signify to you? Does he plan on coming back? Right? He's not like, I'm going to leave my, you know, my ski gear here. Uh, some of us that are empty nesters know what it's like to also be in the storage business. <laughs> I'm going to leave some, some of my accoutrement here. No. The son says, give me every single thing that I've got to take, everything that I've got, and I'm going to go. And where does he go? He goes to a foreign or distant country where he what? Surprise. Everyone say, surprise, surprise. Sur say it with me. Surprise, surprise. He squandered his estate in what? Foolish living. Do you remember college? <laughs> Many of us don't remember college, and here's why. Because we were engaged in foolish living. I'm pretty sure I didn't actually go to college, although if you were to ask me to recollect 18 to 24, I don't know that I could do that with that much certainty. So, foolish living. After he spent what? Everything, right? He could have used the nine-week course, Financial Peace University. <laughs> Goes on. Now, everyone get ready to gasp because there's a huge twist in the story. You ready? Ready? Yeah. Ready? Ready? A severe famine struck. Oh, my gosh, the plot thickens, right? First of all, this kid, you know, this, this younger brother, he takes all of his father's wealth and he squanders it on foolish living. Do you see? And then guess what happens? A famine strikes, right? Just at the wrong time. I mean, if you go and blow everything that you've got when times are good, odds are there's going to be a safety net. Somebody can help you out, right? There's going to be some margin in some people's income where they can help you out. But here, the famine has struck. Things are so bad, it says he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of this foreign country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. Now, it's highly likely here, in my opinion, in my reading of it, that we are to see a scandal. Because for, uh, for the Jewish hearers in Jesus' day, you did not want to be uh, that close or that friendly with pigs. They were generally considered to be unclean. At the very least, what we know is this, that this dude is in a bad place. Y'all see that? I mean, he's in a bad spot, right? He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but none would give him, uh, excuse me, but no one would give him anything. Notice no one would give him anything. Why is that? It's probably because there's a famine going on. And you know when generosity shrinks the most? When we're all afraid the most. And so everyone's like, hold, hold up, you ain't my fam. You're going to have to handle your own business. Even the pigs are like, I'm all right, Jack. Keep your hands off of my stack. Thank you, amen. Pink Floyd, Pink Floyd in the house. Right? 
And so when he came to his senses, notice, real quick here, nobody's given him anything, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, parents of teenagers and 20-somethings, I want to encourage you, suddenly, what happened? He came to his senses. Some people change when they see the light, but most people change when they feel the heat. How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. Now, I, I don't know if he's actually dying of hunger, but I also know that sometimes younger people can be prone to hyperbole. Oh. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. Notice this. I have sinned against what? Heaven. Another, it's a, another way to say I've sinned against God. And you, right? So he recognizes that his rebellion, it, it may be that he's got in mind uh, one of those infamous uh, uh, phrases in Scripture, honor your father and your mother, right? It could be that he recognizes that he's dishonoring God as well as his dad. And so uh, in heaven in your sight, I am no longer, worth, what's the word? I am no longer what? Worthy. TV time out. I want you to think about what is going on in this kid's mind in this young man's mind, when he thinks about his father and he and his father's relationship, how is he, at least at this point, how is he assuming the relationship works? When he thinks about the nature of his father's relationship to him, how is he assuming that it works? He's here. He's rehearsing what he's going to say. You guys see that? He's rehearsing, right? You guys ever done that? How many of y'all have ever had a hard conversation you're going to have to have and you're like pacing around in your underwear rehearsing the thing over and over and over again, right? All right. So he's pacing around, he's rehearsing over and he says, what? so again, he's going to say to his dad, dad, I'm not, what's the word? Worthy to be called your son. What is his working assumption on the nature of his father's relationship to him? It's American religion. If I'm a good little boy or girl, then you'll love me. If I'm a good enough person, then I'll get heaven. <laughs> right? If I just try hard enough, if I just go to church enough or log into the online service enough, and, and maybe if I log in for the first 10 minutes and then just browse Facebook, I don't think that Pastor Caleb can even see me, but I see you. <laughs> I see you. Right? American religion says if you're just a good person, then God or the cosmos will love you. It's a, it, and it, isn't it like American consumerism to assume that our relationship with God is transactional? What can I do for you so you can do something for me? What does the young man assume about the nature of his father's disposition towards him? The assumption is, if I'm a good son, if I'm a good son, then you'll love me. Do you see it? Now, in the context that Jesus was giving this parable in, the religious elite were probably like, that's right. Right? But while the son was still, okay, so, okay, so everybody ready to gasp again? 
Get the gasp muscles ready. Father, I have sinned against you in heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. And so he got up and went to his father. Now I want you to see. But while the son was still a long way off. How long is a long way? It's a long way. Right? How long? I don't know. Long. A long way off. His father saw him and was filled with TV timeout, a little Bible trivia. Do you know what the first word in the Bible that God uses to describe his character to us? Do you know what the first word in Exodus that God uses, that God says out loud to describe his own character to us so that we could understand? You know what the first word that he uses is? Could have said gracious, powerful, right? Epic. Could have used all sorts of words. You know what word he uses? Compassion. He says, I'm a compassionate God. Now notice what the text says. While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. He was filled with, what's the word? Compassion. And then what does he do? Now, if you're the religious elite, right, you're, the, you're, the, you're Johnny Do-Gooder. You've given your heart over to American religion. What, how do you assume that the story is going to go? That the father saw him, ran out there, and beat him within an inch of his life. And gave him what he had coming. Don't you assume that? Now here's the gasp. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, not his hands. Parenting tip. And kissed him. And the son said, The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Right? He's rehearsed it over and over and over again. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but the father, but the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put on, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let us celebrate with a feast. What has the father already done for the son? Remember how the story started? Boy comes to the dad, dad, give me what's coming to me out of the inheritance. Father has already, already liquidated assets and given it to the son, right? And now what does he do? Now, I want you to just ask yourself this question. If prodigal means to spend extravagantly, who's the real prodigal here? Now, the son was an idiot. And he spent his, I mean, he just, he just blew the inheritance, Right? But I want you to see the father who's already liquidated a healthy amount of his assets. And then what does he do? Jewelry, clothing, footwear, right? Bring in the fattened calf, which you would, every wealthy family would have had a fattened calf that they would have taken special care of for one special occasion. It had to be like the, the, the bestest of bestest parties to have the fattened calf brought out. They slaughter it. And what do they do? They celebrate with a feast. When you think about how God thinks about you or thinks towards you, when you think about God's disposition towards you, when you think about the relationship between God, your heavenly father, and you, how do you imagine it to be? I remember one time my son, uh, he, 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 he got the macaroni out, you know, the macaroni noodles and he got the construction paper out. You guys see where this is going. 
And he got the Elmer's glue, which I don't know why I own. And then he took the perfectly good construction paper and the perfectly good elbow macaroni and the perfectly good Elmer's glue. And he... <laughs> Dad, look what I made you. Great, I was going to have that for dinner, thanks. No, right? I mean, you guys have seen this phenomenon, right? Where does it go? It goes on the fridge, right? Now, how much is that worth to me? Everything. Economically speaking, he, he, it was a waste. But it was him communicating his love for me. Now, I want you to imagine in that moment, if he would have said this, Dad, look at what I did for you. Now do you love me? Dad, look what I did. Look at all the good things, right? The elbow macaroni on the glue and the construction paper. Look what I did for you. Now do you love me, Dad? And there are many of us, even here today, listening to this, thinking about our relationship with God as being an American, uh, the, the, the consumeristic model of transactional relationships. And we're assuming that if I just do enough good things for God, then he'll love me. But I want you to see that Jesus blows up that idea. Why is the son loved? Because of what he's done? No, because of why? Because he's the son. And I want you to know that Jesus has come, God in the flesh. He's given his life for you. Dying on a Roman cross, he cried out, it is finished. And in doing so, he paid the penalty for our sin. He paid the wages. He satisfied the justice of God so that anyone who turns like this rebellious son, anyone who turns from going their own way, going in their own rebellious way, anyone who turns, right, anyone who turns, the Bible calls that repentance, and turns, the father comes running after What's your relationship with God like? Some of us are saying, well, if God only knew what I've done, and I want to get just a spoiler alert, if he's God, he already knows. That's why they call him God, right? You will never surprise God. God wants your joy. He wants your flourishing, and he loves you so much. Now, some of us right now are asking this question. I'm going to land the plane here. How many times does dad come running? Some of us have had this experience once, twice, 15 times. And some of us even right now are wondering, how many times does the dad see me far off turning to him? How many times does dad come running? So a friend of mine uh, who I've known for uh, probably too long, uh, feels like it's too long. Uh, he and I have known each other uh, initially at a distance and then got to know each other a little bit better. And, and he's been open about this, so I'm just going to share with you a little bit. Uh, and, and he knew of Jesus and was familiar, thought Jesus looked pretty cool with the long hair and the pictures, you know, like a heavy metal guy, which I think is cool. I like my Jesus to play electric guitar, as they say. But he would be having himself, finding himself moving towards Jesus and then sometimes moving 
away. Sometimes he would find himself in rebellion against God, and sometimes he would find himself turning to God. And in the course of my relationship with him, I would see him for a long time, and sometimes I wouldn't see him for a long time. And what it ended up, as he told me after, is, you know, he was, he was back and forth in sobriety. And frankly, he thought meth and a bunch of other stuff was going to do what the young man in the parable thought that the inheritance was going to do. Finally, satisfy. Y'all know what that feels like? This longing to be satisfied? Now, for, for, for many of us, it's not meth. For some of us, we're just filling our lives with trying to get more money, trying to make our family do what they want, trying to, you know, level up in our career or our social network. For every one of us, there is something that's not God that's in the foreign land that we find ourselves frequently chasing. Y'all ever been there before? I don't know what's in your foreign land that you're chasing to try to find satisfaction, but each of us have a foreign land. Hmm? And I think it was a year or two ago, he, uh, he and I were talking, and <laughs> I don't know who came up, I think he came up with it, but it, it's this phrase, Jesus is better than meth, because he found satisfaction in Jesus. And I want to encourage you in this, that no matter what you're finding or what you're pursuing in, the, in your foreign country, Jesus loves you so much, and he calls you home. He calls every one of you by name and says, turn and follow me. And you know who Jesus says no to? Nobody. One of the things that's very clear to me as I read the scripture is this. Anyone who wants Jesus gets Jesus. Now, one of the cool things is, is the person who uh, came up with this phrase and made this t-shirt, he actually led us in worship today, Lionel. And the thing that binds Lionel and I together and you and I together is that we're just a bunch of misfits tempted to go into our own foreign land who have been beckoned home by a loving father. Jesus loves you so much. Would you turn to him today? There is nothing that you can do that will surprise him. He wants for you your joy and your flourishing. And he chases after us in love. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we see in this teaching just a powerful image of your love for those of us that are runaways. Each of us have a foreign land. Each of us have some thing that we're tempted to make our ultimate thing. Something that we desire to satisfy us, but Jesus, we know that ultimately it is you and your love that truly satisfy. And so would you shape us more and more into your likeness? Would you continue to make us into the type of people who celebrate when the prodigal returns and who just like you chased us in love? Would you empower us by the power of your spirit to love others just as you have loved us, even when they don't deserve it, especially when they don't deserve it, even when they're doing things that are disappointing to us or frustrating to us, would you instill within us 
a runaway love. Jesus, we ask these things knowing that you love us and you're powerful to bring them about, and so we entrust ourselves to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Church family, I love you. More importantly, Jesus loves you. I hope that you'll join us next week as we talk about that scoundrel of an older brother. It's gonna be great. We'll see you guys next time. When I was blinded by my fear and I